I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the repeal of Roe v. Wade, because that's effectively what the decision was in June of last year, was a landmark victory for both conservatives and for babies. But what should the GOP's focus be on abortion as we move forward into another major election year? I thought we'd get on Stephanie Phillips, who's running for the U.S. Senate in the great state of Nevada. Stephanie, welcome back. Hi, Lars. Thanks for having me back. Do we need, ma'am, and congrats, by the way, say, say where your uh, social media location is so people know how to help out your campaign, if you don't mind. Sure, thanks. It's Phillips for Nevada, and that's the number four, and my website is phillipsfornevada.com. I always forget at the end, and so I wanted to make sure we got it in early. But look, <laughs> I'm, pro, I'm pro-life like so many Americans are, and uh, I also understand Reagan's point out because I'll have people say, well, they're not really pro-life because it's not 100 percent. I said Reagan wasn't 100 percent. Do you hold that against him? And uniformly they'll say, no, what do you mean? I said, well, he didn't believe in or he did believe in abortion being allowed for uh, rape, incest and to save the life of the mother. I said that means he wasn't 100 percent pro-life, but uh, but I think he was pro-life enough. So now that we've got a decision from the, the Supreme Court a year and almost a year and a half ago uh, that says this is up to the states, should there be any federal role in deciding what abortion is and what it isn't? Absolutely not. I believe that it should be in the state's hands, and that's where it belongs. I believe the federal government has gotten a little too big for their britches, and they get into our personal lives. And I, they're intrusive, and I believe the federal government should be reduced in size by a lot. So this, that was a good ruling that the states handle this, and that is abortion is protected in Nevada up to 24 weeks, and that is in our Nevada Constitution. And now, I mean, for for example, I thought Lindsey Graham's lunatic move going into the midterm election saying, let's have a federal law. No, we just got rid of that. We are leaving it up to the states. And frankly, you know, I know that there, there are pro-life people who believe if we could just get a federal law that said it's illegal everywhere, I don't think that's going to happen, number one, uh, in, in this Congress or probably almost any Congress. Uh, but if you got it and it survived court challenges and everything else, uh, it would be tied up for a long, long time. Better to say there are states that have absolutely backed up pro-life points of view, that have put some limitations on abortion, which is not far enough for my, you know, f- for my point of view. But it gets us to places where literally the lives of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands un- of unborn babies are going to be saved by that action. Or you can keep fighting about it uh, and hoping to get either everything or nothing, and you'll get nothing for a while, and that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of lives. That's sort of the way I take a look at the whole issue, and I'm curious for your take. Well, I agree, and I believe that on the federal level, that would just be a complete mess because if a woman goes in to have an abortion and she said she was she was raped and there's a ban across the country 
then that poor woman is going to have to prove that she was raped in order for the government to allow her to have an abortion. I just I don't see it ever happening on the federal level, and it doesn't belong there. Belongs no, it does the state. And Stephanie, I, I, I'm a big fan of, I can't remember if it was Franklin, I think it was Franklin who talked about little laboratories of democracy. I think it's instructive to people and may even change minds when you say, well, gee, Idaho now has a limit and Texas has a limit. How's that working out there? And you say it's working out very well. It's saving a lot of lives. And when other states and people in other states, more importantly, see that and they say, well, why don't we have some limits? Maybe in Nevada, where you are, uh, maybe maybe in other states, that 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 helps to make change better than trying to simply top-down impose something from Washington, D.C. I agree. And here in the states, it's up to the voters, and the voters did vote on that in the 90s, and they allow it up to 24 weeks, which is a long way, in, in Very my loose opinion. Limit. It, it is. And uh, I believe that And if that were to change... It would have to go on the ballot again, it's, and the voters would have to vote on that. So tell me about so, the other issues that are, that are the big ones for your campaign, for U.S. Senate. Well, we talk about children uh, because of the indoctrination that we see in, in this ideology that they're trying to push down their throats in schools. The pornographic books, basically, that they are having these kids read and putting boys and girls locker rooms and private spaces and in their sport programs parents all over this country as well as in nevada that is a huge problem for them and they are fighting back on that also the economy people are having trouble paying their grocery bills and their gas bills and they are concerned where our country is headed they are concerned about the issues at the border and our country not being protected and how many terrorists are coming through our country i don't believe they even know um, the trafficking that is going up and and happening all over our country because of this open borders making it worse fentanyl deaths i mean we can go down the list there are so many things that people are concerned about and I'm just taking one at a time, and, and I'm going to fight back on all of these. That's the only way to do it. Stephanie Phillips, it's Phillips, the numeral four, Nevada, is her website. But one last thing. Do you think those people, if they want to see inflation come down, are they ready for the idea that we can't, we can't have the federal government shoveling out money the way it did during the pandemic, the way it still does now with the pandemic over? We've got to stop shoveling out that money or the money supply will keep on inflating the cost of everything. That's right. I, I think that Americans are waking up and they are seeing what's going on in this country and they are seeing the out of control spending. I have voters all across this state talk to me about that as I travel around and the money has to stop. And this is our money. This is American taxpayer dollars and it's being spent recklessly. So we need people in Congress that are going to responsibly spend our money and take care of our country and put America first. Yeah, I'd like to see, I mean, the fact, the very fact that we went from last year's budget at a trillion deficit to the current budget at $2 trillion, that we doubled the amount of debt that we're taking on in one year, that we've got, to get, we've got to get that cut back down. And frankly, I wish the Congress, if you get into the United States Senate, I would like to see you be one of those advocates who says, listen, 
Why don't we do this? Let's go back to the 2019 budget. Tell all the federal agencies that's all you get. And then we can go through and start cherry uh, p- picking off some of the agencies. Department of Ed, I'd get rid of it tomorrow. Uh, much of the yeah. Commerce Department, get rid of it tomorrow. And we could actually cut it back to where we have a reasonable budget. That's Stephanie Phillips. She's running for the United States Senate in the Silver State, great state of Nevada. You can find her at Phillips for Nevada. That's Phillips for Nevada. And you can find me at talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also find me on Instagram, other social media. You can vote in our Twitter poll or send me an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. drawn in the sand. He's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to our great friend, great friend of the program, and that is Dr. Henry Miller. He finds his home these days at the American Council on Science and Health. He is a medical doctor, molecular biologist, and he used to work for the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. In fact, he founded it. Dr. Miller, welcome back. Great to be with you, Lars, as always. Now, you have told my audience before how directly involved you were at FDA in approving the first human insulin. And if people say, what do you mean human insulin? Uh, A synthetic insulin because, to put it bluntly, they were running out of the animal version of insulin that was the go-to for so long? Yeah, there there were uh, potential shortages of the uh, pig and beef insulin. Uh, but fortunately, uh, the new uh, recombinant DNA techniques for genetic engineering had come along. And uh, this was really a remarkable tour de force. So um, uh, the uh, diabetes specialists at the Eli Lilly Drug Company obtained a uh, clone of uh, E. coli bacteria that contained the gene for human insulin uh, from a California biotech firm, Genentech. And uh, they used this, uh, this bacteria to uh, produce human insulin. They grew it up in large fermenters like the way we produce beer or wine uh, and uh, uh, developed good purification techniques. So it was really superior to the animal insulins that had preceded it and and could be produced in unlimited amounts uh, readily. And, in fact, after they did that, though, they had to go to the U.S. government hat in hand and say, now you have to approve it for us to sell it to the public, right? Exactly. And uh, that's an interesting story in several ways. Uh, Lilly um, were probably and still are probably the best uh, diabetes experts in the world. And uh, they, uh, after developing purification techniques, they began clinical trials in July of 1980 and uh, were able to complete the trials, crunch the data, 
and submit an application to the FDA for approval in May of 1982, which was really an extraordinary tour de force. And uh, my little team uh, at FDA uh, evaluated this. We worked very, very hard on this, and were able to grant the approval in uh, on October 29th of that same year, a five-month approval at a time when the average uh, new drug approval application took uh, two and a half years to approve. Now, that, that means we're just past two days past the anniversary on October 29th, 41 years ago. How long, do you have any way of estimating how long the same kind of approval of the same kind of product might take in today's government environment? Uh, I, I would say it would probably be in the two and a half to three year range uh, because uh, FDA works slowly, works too deliberately. Uh, and uh, these days, they would convene an advisory committee uh, to evaluate the product, and they would there would be a lot of uh, uh, hand wringing and uh, unnecessary um, wheel spinning uh, to to get it approved. Certainly, for a new product, uh, anything that was brand new would uh, would be uh, a very long evaluation process. Meaning, brand new, meaning there's no other product like it. I mean, if somebody comes to FDA and says, hey, I've got a better version of this or a better version of that, that can be a little faster than the usual, what, 10 or 12 years for some kind of chemical, uh, pharmaceutical? Yeah, or if it's, if it's just a, a, a chemical purification. You know, we've been doing chemical purifications uh, for centuries to one degree or another. But, uh, for example, there's a, a new uh, potential a genetic engineering treatment for sickle cell disease, uh, brand new uh, approach to, uh, to it. And uh, that's going to be a slow process uh, it, with uh, a lot of debate. And, and also, as I mentioned uh, in my article on this, there's the FDA mentality to contend with. Um, my old uh, colleague, economist Milton Friedman, used to say, if you want to understand the um, motivation of an individual or, or an organization, look for the self-interest. And the self-interest of bureaucrats is bigger empires, more people, more money, and staying out of trouble. And uh, it, it, you, the way that a bureaucrat gets into trouble is to approve something too quickly that develops a problem or a problem is discovered down the road, then there's hell to pay. Okay, but, but let's make the distinction. So even if they, take, if they take a long time to approve something and it goes south, they'll just fall back on, well, we did take months or years to approve this, so you can't blame us. That's essentially what they're trying to avoid, right? That's exactly right. That's, yeah. That's so exactly does that right. does that kind of process benefit the people of the United States? No, it doesn't. And and in fact, the way that I end that article is to say that uh, FDA by unnecessarily delaying approvals uh, violates the contract that the American people have with re the regulators. The regulators are uh, insulated from. Uh, intimidation or being fired or being disciplined, uh, and in return, they should make decisions solely on the basis of the data and what's best for the uh, for American patients. But instead, they violate that and they delay 
in order to, as you say, provide a, a, an out if there's a problem down the road. They say, we did a 30-month evaluation of this, and we, the, uh, the problems were unanticipated. So all they're trying to say is you can't blame us, blame something else, blame happenstance or whatever. Look, on big decisions, Doc, I mean, taking a new job or buying a house or something, I usually take 24 hours. And most of the time, I already know what my decision's going to be. But if I were to just do a snap decision and it turned out to be a bad one, I might regret it. Let me ask you about something else that I think ties into this. Insulin recently has become notorious as it's too expensive. And one of the things I've never understood You've described the process. There are lots of companies that could make insulin. Uh, there should be a bunch of players. Why didn't insulin prices just naturally gravitate downward the way the cost of almost everything else that's a technological product has gone downward? Why did it end up going up so high to the point where the government felt the need? I wish they hadn't done it, but felt the need to say, you can't charge. We're going to dictate how much you can charge for insulin. Why didn't the marketplace bring about uh, you know, I guess, sensible insulin prices? Well, that that's an excellent question. And the pricing is not really my area of expertise. Okay. But, but it's my understanding that what happened is that uh, there are several companies that produce uh, human insulins. Well, what they do is they keep uh, patenting slightly new variations on the theme, and then their, their product is patent protected. And so... It's not open to competition uh, because they have the new the new wrinkle, the new model year, if you will. Uh, but you would think that there would be generic human insulins that were right. cheap. And I well, don't, the I ones don't that are know. out of patent protection, where you say, okay, uh, we want to make insulin. Well, do you want to make the latest, greatest, or are you willing to make the the okay version that's still fine? And a company would come in and say, let's take the stuff that's out of patent or copyright, and we'll make a bunch of that stuff, and we'll sell it. Whatever they're selling insulin for, we'll sell our stuff 10% below that. Makes sense, and I don't know the reason that that's not I mean, done. Beca- because the other comparison, I know we don't have time for it tonight, Doc, but how many companies do you think make over-the-counter aspirin today? A hundred? Oh, lots, lots and lots. I, right, actually, I walk into the grocery store and buy aspirin from, I don't know, at least a dozen different companies, and you think there can't be much profit in something that sells for like a 1,000 aspirin pills for $20. You know, you're, you're not getting that much, but there still must be enough profit in it to make it make sense for a company to say, let's come out with our own brand X aspirin or generic aspirin, and they sell it for relatively low prices. i got to figure that one out. Dr. Henry Miller can be found at the American Council on Science and Health. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. men and the people who love them. You can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'll get to your phone calls here in just a moment. But I find this fascinating. 
Think about this question, and I mean it seriously. Should every single American have a constitutional right to earn a living? And you say, well, of course we do. We have those freedoms to earn a living. Well, maybe and maybe not. Larry Saltzman joins me now, who's director of litigation. He's in charge of the lawsuits at Pacific Legal Foundation. Larry, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lars. It's good to be with you. Well, let's start with that question, and thank you for that. But let's start with that question. Do I have a constitutional right to earn a living any way I choose that's legal? Effectively, no. On paper, uh, the Supreme Court says that there is such a thing as a right to earn a living. But as far back as the uh, 1873 and it was reaffirmed during the New Deal, what they said is that right gets the lowest level of judicial scrutiny. So a state can do almost anything it wants to restrict your right to enter the occupation of your choice, and judges are mostly going to shrug at it. So that right isn't worth a whole lot, despite the fact that uh, it's given uh, lip service. Well, and by the way, Larry, the only reason I threw in legally, I'm not talking about people making a methamphetamine in their bathroom or their kitchen. I'm not talking about uh, kidnapping people. I'm not talking about uh, things that are criminal acts. But all the other legal things, you should have the right to do it. And in fact, there's a case involving, and I might say her name wrong, is it Ursula or Ursula Newell Davis? Ursula Newell Davis. And she didn't want to do anything all that complicated, although it's a very needed service. She wanted to have a care service for special needs kids, in this case, in her home of New Orleans. Would you mind telling my audience what happened to her? Yeah, I'm glad you emphasized we're talking about common lawful occupations. We're not talking about the right to do something illegal. We're talking about uh, the things that people do with the skills that they have. They're qualified to do ordinary occupations. And so what Ursula is a social worker. She's been a social worker for 20 years. She has a real passion for special needs kids, in part because she has uh, a child with some disabilities herself. And most of her social work has been working with families that are struggling to get services for special needs kids. She saw that respite care was something they needed. So that's temporary care. You know, you leave your child with somebody for hours or a few days while you go to work, while you take care of your personal needs, while you run errands. But you want to leave a child in that situation with somebody who's really qualified, who has the credentials to care for them. That's what Ursula can do. That's what she tried to do. She tried to start a business in New Orleans doing this in 2019. And the state said no. They said no, despite her qualifications. They said flat out, your qualifications, your credentials to do this have nothing to do with our decision to prohibit you from earning a living in this field that you want to go into. We have a law, they call it a facility need law, that requires that we determine whether you're qualified or not, whether we think, the bureaucrats and administrative agency think, there is a need for your services. And Remarkably, that law also invites competitors to your new service to weigh in on whether they think there's a need in the community for an additional service provider. And, of course, they don't want more competition. They always say, no, there's no need. And the state denied her a right to even apply for the license to start that business. Now, see, that's what's crazy, because, Larry, I like competition. I think competition breeds excellence and everything else. And you might think that if somebody like a smart lawyer like you came to me and said, Lars, we're thinking of a law that says nobody else can enter the talk radio profession, and that'll free you from all that competition, that I would say, sure, let's do that. I would hate that. I would fight against it because I'd say, no, no, I think competition is a good thing. And in fact, my competitors don't have any right to lock me out, and I don't have a right to lock anybody else out. But this is, a, and this isn't the only state that has this kind of certificate of need or facilities need law, is it? 
No, it's crazy. As you say, we wouldn't invite Burger King to weigh in on whether or not there should be another McDonald's franchisee down the block. Of course, they're going to say no. They don't want the competition. But in a dozen or more states, there are laws like this, and they're particularly acute in uh, medical fields, healthcare fields. They keep out competition. They reserve areas of, of practice or specialty or services for incumbent providers. Uh, they ward off the competition. And not for nothing, it's a, a big reason why medical costs are sky high. It drives away the competition. It stops the market from expanding. So what's happened at this point? And is this, this is a fight that she's been waging for some time. Uh, and it actually yeah. goes back in history almost 200 years. But in, in the future, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear this one or already has? They haven't yet. Uh, we've petitioned the Supreme Court to hear it, and they're probably going to tell us at least whether they're interested and want to hear more from us uh, sometime in early October. She's been fighting for several years lawsuit, and we've lost in the lower courts, and we've lost for a simple reason, and that is the lower court said, look, in 1873, the Supreme Court of the United States said that the right to earn a living in a common, ordinary occupation is not one of the rights that is protected strictly by the 14th Amendment. We say that's wrong. We think she should win, even if it's not particularly strictly enforced, even if it got uh, mild consideration by the courts. But to hear the case, it's likely that the Supreme Court has an interest or wants to overturn this 150-year-old case. And you might ask, 150 years, why do you think there's any greater odds now than there was any time in the last 150 years? There's been percolating up through the lower courts and the appellate courts a growing awareness that this is a neglected right, that this is a right that probably was intended to be protected by the drafters of the 14th Amendment. In fact, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of scholarly articles that have been written over the past 30 years saying just that and bringing forth historical evidence. And the Supreme Court has taken notice of it in a few recent cases. They just haven't taken the case squarely on the point that we need them to, to really elevate this right to earn a living. Larry, I'm talking to Larry Salzman from Pacific Legal. So am I right in guessing that because this involves the 14th Amendment, that the idea was the 14th Amendment needed to protect people because in those days you'd say, wow, all these freed black citizens now who used to be slaves, why, they're going to come into our communities and they'll open up butcher shops and they'll open up a sawmill or a lumber mill and they'll they'll be competing with us. We want the ability to lock them out. Uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, and, and is that the basis for, for why they wanted to put that protection in the 14th Amendment and why it should be there? Because historically, it was designed to protect people who were newly freed, you know, so that they could come in and, and are living as well, when there were certainly people at that time who would wanted to, who would have wanted to lock them out. You hit the nail right on the head. The, the Congress, after the Civil War, passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and it said states can't uh, prevent newly freed persons from engaging in contracts or starting businesses, from getting licenses to work in certain fields. And, of course, there was a pervasive racist sentiment that tried to shut people out of all those professions. And a big part of the 14th Amendment was making constitutional those rights that were won on the battlefield. When you come forward five years, this first case to interpret this provision that went the wrong way at the Supreme Court, I think the historical uh, narrative about it is that the Supreme Court was a little bit uh, timid. It, It looked at the situation and thought, if we rule too firmly in favor of economic freedom, especially economic freedom of formerly enslaved people, we might restart the war. We might 
create a bigger problem. Let's just take a diminished view of the 14th Amendment. But it was an awful mistake. And I think historians and legal scholars since then have recognized that it was a terrible mistake that needs to be corrected. I mean, I don't suppose, Larry, that both the Democrat and Republican parties were relatively new at that time, but we know, know anything about the politics of those five justices who said, no, 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 this is very narrow. We can't give all these free people these rights. Uh, do we know anything about about their political leanings and how that might have guided their decision? You know, I think it was a little mixed. The the uh, I think more than politics, it was more of a pragmatist sentiment. They just didn't want to rock the boat more than they thought they needed to, and they... Oh. Perhaps they didn't realize the implications of it, although Justice Stephen Field, who is probably you would consider him in the radical Republican camp of the kind of people who drafted the 14th Amendment, uh, he has a very bitter dissent that is really uh, strongly saying this is a huge mistake. This is going to make the 14th Amendment, the Privileged Immunities Clause of that 14th Amendment, into what he called a, quote, vain and idle enactment that excited the country for nothing. And he recognized right away that if we go this direction, uh, we're sealing the deal on economic hmm. freedom, which was a well, huge part of what we were trying to do with the 14th Amendment. As usual, the Republicans were on the right side of that one, just like they are today. Larry, thank you very much, and good luck. I hope the Supreme Court takes it up. That's Larry Saltzman, Director of Litigation for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Hey, Lars, and I realize that when you tune into this show and some of your new listeners on new affiliates around America and some are not, I know that you probably get used to me asking you crazy questions. Now, I would define a crazy question among them. Should the Black Panthers, uh, essentially a 60s or 70s terrorist group, should they be deciding what your kid learns in history class? Well, to answer that question with some sensibility, maybe more than I've got, Maddie German joins us now from the group The Freedom Foundation. Maddie, welcome back. I'm happy to be here, Lars. Thanks for having me. So so tell me how we came to have the Black Panthers deciding what your kids learn in history class. What's going on? It's ridiculous. I have a lot to tell you. So let's start off with some context. So the American Federation of Teachers, or AFT, is the second largest teachers union in the country. And like most public sector unions, AFT offers its members workplace representation. But in addition, the AFT offers um, its members access to the union's database of lesson plans that are encouraged for classroom use. So I've spoken around these lesson plans, and I came across the title, quote, The Black Panther Party Then, Black Lives Matter Today. And, you know, this immediately stood out to me. It raised some red flags. And let me tell you, Lars, that gut feeling was correct. I'd like to preface this with the fact that AFT President Randy Weingarten has been extremely outspoken about a professional obligation for educators to teach students honest history. And I'll give it to her. We all want our children to be taught history that's based on the facts. But a closer look into this lesson plan specifically really begs the question of whether the AFT actually cares about honest education or if this is just another one of their ideological talking points. So this lesson specifically surrounds the Black Panther Party, a civil rights group active throughout the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1960s, 70s, like you mentioned. But like you also mentioned, the key difference between the Black Panthers and other civil rights groups at the time is that they embraced violence over the integrationist philosophy of other leaders, like Dr. King, for example. Instead, the Black Panthers were heavily armed, repeatedly threatened to overthrow the United States government, and killed quite a few police officers in, in the process. And so while the Black Panthers were certainly significant to the civil rights movement and certainly has a place for some sort of discussion in our classrooms, 
the AST takes a revisionist history approach that's really kind of concerning. I mean, this lesson plan glorifies the Black Panthers and argues that the group only utilized violence and self-defense, which we know isn't true. And instead, the lesson plan focuses almost exclusively on the Black Panthers' community food distribution programs. And I mean, the AST puts it in no uncertain terms. Supposedly, the lesson, quote, helps kids understand that activism can take many forms. Apparently, one of these forms of activism is violence. And further, the AST invites students to consider parallels between the Black Panther Party and and the modern-day Black Lives Matter movement. And I mean, all this is pretty unsurprising considering the AST's pretty deep ideological bias, but to to me, the most shocking part of this lesson plan is its suggested assignment, which would require students to meet with local Black Lives Lives Matter activists. I don't know about you, Lars, but to me, this sounds a whole lot like the AFT is on on a mission to train the next generation of left-wing activists, and they're taking advantage of their influence within the public school system to do so with the help of our taxpayer dollars. See, I'm with you because I think politics, especially the personal politics of the teacher and the administrator, have no business whatsoever in the classroom. And I say that even if somebody were to ask me, Maddie, well, what about somebody who's pro-life? Should they be able to, which I happen to agree with, should they be able to proselytize pro-life in the classroom? And I'd say no. You're there to teach them a subject. If it happens to be current events, you might end up in that. But if you're teaching history, science, biology, English, math, calculus, or whatever, your politics, your politics, you don't get a free shot at all at this captive audience of kids just because you were hired to teach math or Spanish or something like that. You're there to teach that subject. Leave it to that. Now, does this curriculum at all address, or does it just soft-pedal the violent end of the Black Panther Party? You know, it specifically mentions that the Black Panthers only acted violently in self-defense, which, again, we know isn't true based on what we know about the organization. I mean, even the FBI classified this organization as an extremist organization, and the AFT is blatantly justifying the actions of extremist groups. I mean, it's just ridiculous, and I think you're so right that if the goal of public education is critical thinking, if we want to come up, if we want to develop good thinkers for our society, we can't force a political agenda down these kids' throats. It's just not appropriate. No, and even if you want to do a Black Panther lesson, I mean, I try, I try to look for ways to say, okay, you want to talk to me of Black Panthers? Give half the kids the lesson of why the Black Panthers were good for America, and the other half the class the lesson that they were bad for America, and they were a bad group that used illegal and sometimes violent tactics and then uh, when everybody's done writing their papers, have the best to, you know, stand up and, and have a debate in the classroom. And then you get to hear both sides. The problem is that wouldn't advance Randy Weingarten's highly political agenda, now would it? Exactly. And it's really an unfortunate trend that's going on within the public sector labor union. They're straying away from key issues related to workplace representation while doubling down on this clear political agenda. And, and like I said, this sort of rhetoric shouldn't have a place in the classroom. And we need to recognize that teachers unions like the AFT do have an ideological agenda when it comes to our students. Do they admit, uh, by the way, I'm just curious, I'm tempted to look this up myself, so I may ask you to email me the link. But Maddie, when I heard that comparison, Black Panther Party and Black Lives Matter, I said, yeah, 
I, I think there is a comparison. The Black Panther Party was violent. Uh, they committed criminal acts. Black Lives Matter, and I've talked not on the air. They've never been willing to come on the air. But uh, I've, I've gone out in the street when they're having these demonstrations, say, hey, come on my radio show and tell me what your grievance is. And they uniformly refuse. But what I do know is after the summer of 2020, I saw $3 billion in damage. I saw looting. I saw arson. I saw uh, uh, looting, arson, murder, assault, people going to the hospitals, three dozen people murdered. I thought, yeah, Black Lives Matter fits right in with the Black Panther Party, if you look at it that way. But that's not the view being delivered to kids. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting that we heard so much from the mainstream media about how none of those protests were violent, were violent that Black Lives Matter was a very nonviolent group. And this is the same thing that we're hearing about the Black Panther Party. So it's interesting that that even the AFP is drawing comparisons between a violent extremist organization and the Black Lives Matter movement today. Which is, as far as I'm concerned, a violent extremist movement. Thanks for writing this up. Where can people find it online, Maddie? Freedomfoundation.com. Well, keep up the good work. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. You betcha. That's Maddie German from the Freedom Foundation. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you'd rather email, I'll tell you what, we love your emails like this one. Lars, this was about a call yesterday. Dennis the Blind Woodworker is the way he signs himself. Lars, one of the things your guest didn't mention about government control of the medical system yesterday, he didn't mention that if a doctor works for a nonprofit organization, their education loans will be forgiven after 10 years. The reason I know that, my son got a $500,000 student loan forgiven. And even though he makes $350,000 a year, is that fair? And I would answer to Dennis the Blind Woodworker, absolutely it's not fair. It's a government program after all. Glad to have you send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, October 22nd, 1981, the U.S. national debt hit, uh, well, a a trillion dollars. I know, it sounds like a long time ago, 42 years ago. Fast forward to today, it has increased to $33 trillion. And, of course, that doesn't even begin to count all of the unfunded mandates, things like Social Security, Medicare, and other things that we have agreed to pay, and we have absolutely no idea where the money is. The guy who does know where the money is and where it's been going is our friend Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Thank you. 
You made a great comparison in that uh, one of the words I try to avoid using because the liberals use it so much in such a bad way is sustainable. They'll talk about sustainable architecture and sustainable energy and sustainable food. They're all about sustainable. But you've questioned, how about some sustainable spending, spending that that doesn't run us into this massive amount of debt? Oh, absolutely. We have a real challenge with spending continuing at the state level as well as the federal level at Americans for Tax Reform, the group that I uh, organized, we ask people to take the pledge not to raise taxes. That solves a lot of the problem. And uh, most Republican governors and uh, congressmen and senators have taken and kept the pledge. Uh, But spending is the true cost of government. Uh, Once the government spends a dollar, they either had to take it from people in taxes or borrow or inflate to get that money. And that money comes out of our pockets one way or the other. But you, you can't do a spending pledge because if you, what would you say? I promise not to spend more than what this year's budget number. Well, with inflation and time, you know, it changes. So, um, and when they do those budgets, you know, one committee spends money, then another committee changes it, and then it goes to the House and the Senate and the president. And a politician could tell you, you know, I, I've closed much of what was in that bill that I voted for. And they're not lying, right? Other people stuck stuff in, and he wanted one thing in it, and other stuff got added on. So we, we've put together budgets for the 50 states and say, if you didn't, if you grew the budget, state budget, just as rapidly as the incomes of the people who live in the states. So government spending would not grow faster than the paychecks of the people in the state. Yep. And we're sharing this in each state to say, you know what? If you do this each year, you don't become a greater burden on the people of your state. If you do it over 10 years, you can become a very significantly less expensive government for people. This is the difference over time that gave you New York spends twice as much per person as Florida. Okay. They have roughly the same number of people. Florida is a little bit bigger and uh, New York spends 230 billion. And uh, they spend $115 billion in Florida, half as much. So what do they do in New York they don't do in Florida? They both got roads. They both have schools. They both have prisons. Uh, New York hires more people, more bureaucrats. They pay them more. They have fewer hours that they work. Uh, they get pensions that you and I will never see. Uh, and they get benefits on top of the pay, um, which also is sort of a hidden expense hidden from taxpayers too often. And that's, but, but that happens over 20, 30, 40 years that you get a doubling of the cost of government in New York versus Florida. But if New York started today to just grow as fast as people's wages, they could get back in, in shape, um, like, you know, losing weight or exercising or something. You don't do it overnight, but you can do it over time. And some states have actually, um, you know, sat down and for the last 10 years, they've kept spending from growing faster than the wages of the people in their state, Texas, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Louisiana, one that surprised me, um, Connecticut. Um, wow. So these are uh, ones, and these, these are dealing with the, um, the the general fund, which is the, the uh, fund that the state controls, not, you know, if the federal government comes in, throws a bunch of money on top of something, that's really not the state's 
choice and so on. The federal government decided they were going to do X, Y, or Z. But the, the, the funds that they control, they've actually kept those. Those states have, have kept that down. Um, but And Alaska, Colorado, West Virginia, and Wyoming have kept both, both with federal funds and without federal funds, below the uh, wages of people in the state. So if you keep spending in control, then it becomes a lot easier not only to keep taxes under control, but there are 12 states today that are phasing their income tax down to zero. How? By doing a version of that. Saying well, we're Mississippi is spend. one of them, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I, I've watched what they're doing, they, and, and I think Idaho must be another one of them because they both bragged we've been able to reduce taxes uh, while everybody else in America in government is saying, oh, we have all these crises going on all the time, which means we need more money. No, not necessarily. You need better management. Yes. North Carolina has been reducing taxes just about every year for 11 years, um, and they bring their spending down. And they've been taking the income tax rate down from over about seven and a half down towards four. And they're on the way to 2.4. Well, the other thing is, I think you get better government, uh, Grover, because people say, well, you hate government. No, government's a tool. I don't hate my chainsaw, but it's dangerous if used the wrong way. I think government's the same way. It's a great tool and you need it for certain things. But if you were to say, well, when a state bureaucracy says... We only have this much money because the population only grew or the paychecks only grew this much. Then we have to be very careful about how we spend it. If you've got an unlimited uh, pocketbook and you go with your family to the to, to Costco, you know, you just fill up the carts. Doesn't matter. Nobody even looks at the price because we've got the money to pay for it when you get to the cash register. Whereas the person is looking at their paycheck saying, I have one hundred and seventy five dollars to spend on food for the next you know week. And you say, so we're not spending a dime over 175. You become very particular about what you pick and what you buy, right? Absolutely. It's the old saying that work, uh, I'm sorry, work expands to fill the time available. You know, yeah. if your paper's done in two days, your paper's done in four days. If you give them four days, the work will take four days. Uh, and money will, you know, government budgets will expand to fill the amount of money available regardless of what the job is. The job just gets more expensive. No doubt. Grover, well, I wish we could, just to give people a parting thought, one of the numbers, two of the numbers you gave me, total federal spending in one decade rose 69%. So say 7% a year for 10 years. Now, has anybody's paycheck gone up 7% a year for the last 10 years? A few people, but the average person, no way has their paycheck gone up 7% a year for the last 10 years. And at the state level, it's more like 5% per year for the last 10 years. When the government is growing that fast, Grover Norquist from the Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. If the government is growing faster than our paychecks are growing, then at some point, either we go bankrupt or the government goes bankrupt or they run us into bankruptcy. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
wise words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a Monday. And if you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Of course, we're keeping an eye on what's going on in Israel right now as the death toll continues to mount, as the number of hostages identified continues to ramp up. But there are some other important issues going on in America that I wanted to talk to Ryan Walters about. He is the superintendent of the Oklahoma State School System and a former U.S. history teacher. Superintendent Walters, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. And, and I appreciate your coverage here of the issues going on in Israel. Our prayers go out to the Israelis here at this time. And it's just absolutely disgusting to see Hamas continue to use terrorist tactics against Israel. Um, but we put out a statement today. One of the things we're looking at in our standards is we want to ensure that our kids understand um, what's going on in the Middle East and understand that these operations have been used terrorist tactics, and that that's absolutely unacceptable. And so we're actually taking a look at our standards today to ensure that we're giving our students enough understanding of geography of the Middle East to understand exactly the threat that Israel faces every day. Well, I hope you do a great job with it, because one of my frustrations, Ryan, is that there seem to be a, a stunning number of kids, either in high school or, or college, who side with the, the terrorist side of things. And they say, oh, yeah, these people have been mistreated. So therefore, Hamas is doing what only what it has to do, that it has to go out and slaughter women, children, old people, uh, you know, young kids, non-combatants. And I just wonder if they're not getting those ideas from school or college, where the heck are they getting them? Okay. I appreciate you bringing this up, Lars, because we have absolutely seen this. The college curriculum that's coming out, when we look at the texts that are used in colleges and we look at the professors in college, they have absolutely been teaching an apologetic view of the Palestinians, of, of the conflict in the Middle East. Instead of laying it out, of, hey, what's, what are we talking about? What's the conflict? What's the history around the conflict? And actually calling out decides when they attack women and children and use these terrorist forces. The reality is, is we have seen Hamas. They are a terrorist group. We have seen Hezbollah act like a terrorist group. And so I think it's very important to not allow these left-leaning college professors to drill into our teacher's head and our kid's head that, hey, you know, both sides are just completely operating the same way. It's just a disagreement. No, we have routinely seen um, th- those groups in particular target women and children in order to achieve their ends. Well, it's funny because even the language, and some of it's subtle, Ryan, but I watch the Washington Post today had a headline early this morning that said uh, so many dead in fighting between Hamas or b- uh, between Palestinians and Israelis. And I thought, hold on, one side had an unprovoked attack. The other side responded Do you really want to put them on the moral same ground where you say, oh, they were just, there's a fight. Like two kids went out on the schoolyard when Ryan, back when you were a history teacher, and they kind of engaged in mutual combat, and each one of them came up with a bloody nose or a a black eye. You could say, well, these two kids were in a fight. But if one kid went out and sucker punched another kid and knocked him to the ground and did tremendous damage to him, and then the friends of the kid who was knocked down came out and, and punched that kid and say, hey, you leave our friend alone. 
that, that you're going to put those on the same level, you know, the, the attacker versus the person or entity defending itself. But that's what a lot of the mainstream media and some mainstream politicians are doing. They put them, they, they make them morally equivalent. Yes, sir. It's absolutely absurd. You know, a great example of this that we've seen in curriculum is if you look at two historians, um, there's Bernard Lewis, who's been a historian of the Middle East for over seven decades, and there's Edward Said. Um, and Bernard Lewis went through a play-by-play of, hey, throughout the history of the Middle East, here's what happened, here's how both sides reacted, here's who they targeted. And again, he leaves it up for the readers to decide, and it's very clear one side has chosen terroristic tactics to target innocent civilians. And then you've got a guy like Edward Said who takes everything from the perspective of, listen, the reality is the Israelis have really started everything because it's, you know, they implicitly believe that they don't have a right to the land they're on. They frankly don't believe that they have a right to exist. So they analyze everything from that perspective. Well, that's not accurate. That's not fair. Take every incursion into a understanding of what occurred. And if you do that, it's pretty clear that frankly, Israel has acted with a lot of restraint, frankly, over the last few decades. And Hamas has acted unbelievably crude and, um, and nasty in targeting women, children, innocent people in order to get Israel to stand down. Well, I'll give you one example where the media does it too, Ryan. Uh, today, the Seattle Times, which is like the usual daily dead fish wrapper, they always tilt to the left. Do they show a picture of that German girl who was paraded around, uh, probably dead, we don't know for sure, but in the back of a pickup truck, two jihadis sitting on top of her. She's got almost no clothing on at all. Complete, She may. She, it may be her dead body, it may be her unconscious body, but she's being treated like a piece of garbage. And these guys are just sitting on top of her like she's a chair. Do they run that picture and say, this is a girl, a young lady, 30, you know, who who went to a concert and she ended up dead or perhaps hostage to these jihadis. No, they run a picture of a kid amid some of the rubble in the Gaza, you know, with some of the belongings from his family, because Israel, I think, properly retaliated against the Hamas headquarters, which they love to put in schools. They put them in in hospitals. They put them in mosques. They put them in the places where they'll be able to say, oh, we planned our terrorist attack here at this mosque, but those darn Israelis came along and blew up the mosque, so they should be criticized because they're blowing up a house of worship. No, they run the picture of the little kid as though our sympathy should be with the, you know, with the Palestinian people. Uh, like it or not, the Palestinian people, to whatever extent, aid and abet the the kind of terrorism that goes on within their country, within that little, you know, five by twenty-five mile stretch of property on the edge of the Mediterranean. And for the American media say, those are the people you should f- feel sorry for, not the young lady who got murdered because she went to a concert and she wasn't doing anything at all to provoke what happened to her. Don't feel for her. Feel for the little kid who's one of the Palestinians. The bias is just so so thick you could cut it. And, Lars, I appreciate you so much shining a light on these issues because you always do this with your audience, and I know that your listeners are, are, are very aware of this, but this is what we see in textbooks in our, in our schools. Guess what? Any time an American has been involved in any kind of issue, guess what? It is a huge picture of a massacre or a scenario. And, I mean, America was terrible, and it's page after page of it. And, but you know what? You're not seeing the way that our enemies targeted civilians. You're not seeing the way that our enemies treated our prisoners of war. 
they try to take any time any American soldier, any American in combat does anything uh, that would be questionable and blow it up into this terrible event, and they go into excruciating detail to describe it. While the other, on the other side, our enemies are flawless. And, and what you see is, again, conservatives, and this is something that I've really honed into lately, is conservatives, what we really want is a history that's just, it's not left or right. It's just what happened, right? What right. happened? What were the causes? What were the impacts? Let's talk through it. Let's get kids to think. Okay, let's get kids to think about these moments. The left doesn't want that. I mean, I'm amazed, Lars, you know, here in Oklahoma, we've launched an initiative of getting Prager University in our schools. We've launched an initiative to get our history back to primary sources where kids can read the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and letters from soldiers, come to their own conclusions. And the left down here is losing their mind. And to the point you made earlier, it's because they don't want a balanced view of history. What they want you to do is walk in and say, America is terrible. Israel is terrible. You know, the reality is, is everything that bad happens to them is justified because they start from a premise that these countries, these nations are terrible, they're evil, they're inherently racist, etc. And what we've got to do is we've got to continue to win this fight because what you have is, to your point, you've got young people that think, ah, you know, it's a tit for tat. You know, the, the Hamas and Israel, tit for tat. No, it's not. It is absolutely not. And we have got to get our, the truth to our young people. God bless you. Uh, Ryan, thank you very much. That's Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent, former U.S. history teacher. Glad to get to your calls in the next segment. You want to join the best conversation in talk journalism? It's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Show. Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I love technology when technology actually makes things better for human beings. And I know people who are just inherently reflexively anti-technology. I'm not that person. I'm also not in favor of every single technology when you find out that some of them can actually be used in a detrimental way toward those of us human beings. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, AI, I have some special concerns about that. So with all that as background and my full disclosure, James Broll joins me now, who's with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. James, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So we've got AI out there just about everywhere. I mean, it's being used by average folks to rewrite uh, uh, term papers and things like that. It's being used for a lot of different purposes, and it does seem to have some real promise for things like medical diagnosis that would be inherently positive for human beings. But do we need to set a, a, a set of rules or guidelines or guardrails around this technology? And if so, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the the risks associated with AI and the, and there are risks associated with it fall into two broad categories. There are longer term risks, and this is a lot of what you hear about on the internet and 
you hear bloggers and um, sci-fi kind of aficionados talking about the end of the world or the end of humanity or out-of-control AI, and they're speculating about Terminator-type scenarios. Those are, those are kind of longer-run concerns, which may be real, may not. There's The evidence is kind of still out on that. But in the shorter term, there are real risks posed by AI uh, related to misinformation, an obvious one with on social media, just um, a lot of these generative AI technologies like ChatGPT or DALI, where they're uh, creating new images and video. Um, not all this information is real. Um, those are there are real risks associated with that. There's privacy concerns associated with data that's being collected um, uh, for from users on a minute by minute basis. There are discrimination concerns when uh, AI technology is used by law enforcement or in hiring or in making lending decisions. You know, you, you mentioned healthcare. There's uh, misdiagnosis is possible. So there, there are definitely real risks, and some of them are kind of already uh, out there. Um, and then the, then the question is, what do we do about that? And in, in response to that question, I would say, because the risks are so varied, uh, it really makes sense to evaluate the different I- issue areas or areas of concern on a case-by-case basis. And that means... Uh, as risks emerge, we think about them carefully and we tailor solutions to specific scenarios rather than having some kind of all-encompassing, broad, you know, new regulatory agency or international regulator. These are some of the proposals that are being made, which are sweeping and would require massive changes in governance. And that they probably just won't work because they're not tailored to the particular problem at hand. I mean, do we want to turn any of that over to international bodies? Because I feel really uncomfortable with having somebody other than our representatives, sad and pathetic as they are some days of the week, uh, making those decisions, saying, well, France and the EU say this is how you have to do it. So, America, you've, you've got to abide by these rules. Should we, should we make this the kind of thing that is decided in the United States? And if we do a good job of it, it's the gold standard for the rest of the world, but not turn it over to some international body. I think what the, so some of these proposals are really a reflection of the fact that it's extremely difficult to regulate AI. And the second you start regulating it, uh, the te- because this technology can be developed anywhere and there's kind of a global race to, to be the leader in this area for both economic and national security reasons, it makes sense that you crack down on it in one place, it's going to pop up in another. And right. the proponents of regulation are anticipating that. And their their only solution is basically global governance, you know, even global surveillance systems oh have been proposed. So they're, they're that reaching That sounds like Klaus Schwab and the WEF, doesn't it, James? I mean, it's to be honest, it's not even practical. It's not. It's unlikely that either major political party in the U.S. would, would want to transfer a lot of their own authority over to some international body. And I think it's a political loser and it's any such entity would likely be very weak. So well, the I, other I don't, thing I don't I've got, I, well, two other things I'm Go concerned ahead. about that I want to ask you about, if you don't mind me rushing through this, because I always have to keep my eye on the clock, but, If we put up really tough limits here, you're right, it'll be developed elsewhere. And should we assume that if we put limits on the legitimate development of AI, that the illegitimate actors, you know, the bad guys, the criminals, the terrorists or whoever, will go on developing their capabilities, which means one of the ways to meet an AI challenge might be with some more AI. 
But but if we limit our development of in, in America and the bad guys, uh, whether it's North Korea or whether it's uh, international criminal, uh, uh, you know, kind of 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 uh, groups that they'll go on developing, theirs will be better than ours, and we'll end up at the at, as the victims of that. That's exactly right. So I mean, who would you rather have at the at the leader of this kind of race to develop the most advanced technology. We'd rather have Google and Microsoft, these established big names. Maybe you don't like some of these big tech companies for one reason or another, but they're not going to be developing bioweapons in their basement. They're not going to be trying to develop nuclear weapons or, uh, you know, do uh, create new viruses or pathogens that they can unleash around the world. And if we start cracking down on the good guys or the big players who have reputations and financial stake on the line, then who knows? It could be other countries first, like China or, um, you know, authoritarian governments in North Korea or even just independent actors, non-state actors like terrorist groups or underground groups. Well, the other the other thing I'm concerned about is it seems like every time we talk about regulating something, the big players can handle regulation just fine. They have whole departments that do nothing but that. And the small players get pushed to the side. And yet, if we want innovation, don't we want the small players to be able to play in the game as well? And if if they come up against a big wall of regulations and limitations, uh, then we're not going to get that, are we? Right. So that, that's probably one of the reasons why in the in the last six months to a year, I mean, as this race has really taken off and we saw ChatGPT come out at the end of last year, the uh, new chatbot that's um, and there's all the tech companies are coming out with their own version of it. And what's happening? They, they feel the competitive pressure and they immediately go to Washington and start asking to be regulated. And the reason <laughs> they do that is because they know it's going to make it harder for the little guys to compete with them make it much harder for open source technologies, which are basically open for anyone to uh, take and adopt and make their own AIs from. And it'll lock in the leaders, uh, the, the leaders of the pack today, the big tech companies. So if you're skeptical of the big tech companies, you should be skeptical of regulating them, especially when they're the main ones calling for regulation. Well, and the other concern I've got is just garden variety criminals. I mean, we already have people who work scams through phone or Internet. I mean, uh, you know, text and, and email. What happens when the criminal groups, and I'm sure they've already done this, figure out how to use AI to fool you into whatever it is they're looking for, usually access to your to your money? Uh, because they're going to do that if they haven't already, aren't they? Right. I mean, it's already happening. You know, you're getting spam calls on your phone. I got a phone call not that long ago. It was a... It, recorded message asking for, for money and it was a, in an English voice. And then halfway through the message, it kind of the AI algorithm broke down and it was like a, a Chinese speaking voice <laughs> on the other wow. side or with a thick Chinese accent. And I mean, the technology it, it exists now to fool people. And, and there's already laws on the books against fraud. And obviously there is a role for government to crack down on that, those sorts of bad actors. And they're just going to have to keep up. And that's that's going to be one of the biggest challenges is just governance challenges. Absolutely right. That's James Brohl, who's with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. James, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. When we get back, I'll get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
has small town politics with big town opinions. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday night. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now consider this. The first act of Joe Biden when he took office as president of the United States was to use every bit of executive authority he claimed to have, whether he had it or not, to try to shut down as much of America's oil industry as he possibly could. Cancel pipelines, cancel drilling, cancel federal leases and all of that. And now the Biden White House is set to significantly ease sanctions on Venezuela. And why would they do that? They say, well, it's to try to make sure they have freer elections in Venezuela in a dictatorship. So they're worried about free elections in a dictatorship, so they're going to ease the sanctions. But is that really what the agenda is? I thought on that question, we turn to Daniel Turner, who's president of Power of the Future. Daniel, welcome back. Lars, always great to be on your program. Thank you. Now, here's the Biden White House worried about making sure elections are fair, even in some of the world's dictatorships like Venezuela. Is that really the agenda or is there something else? Oh, no, this is definitely about an election, but it's about the 2024 election. And what it is, is it's the Biden administration realizing that we have a huge problem with uh, runaway inflation, most of it driven by very high energy prices. And the way to ease those prices is to increase the amount of oil in the world market. And he refuses to allow Americans to produce. Um, and if he does, he would get uh, he, the wrath of the environmental left who's funding his campaign. So he has to go elsewhere. We've seen him go to OPEC and beg them for oil. Um, and now easing sanctions on, on Venezuela is a way for them to produce more oil so that it can hopefully lower prices. And then Biden doesn't have to worry about that in 2024. It just seems crazy, though, the idea that, I mean, as far left as you can go, at what point does doing business with dictatorships, you know, who pe- treat their own people like dirt, how, how is that superior? I mean, because you're still buying oil, you're still supplying the oil that gets burned in America, and it's, what, 18 million barrels a day? I mean, we burn an yeah. incredible, burn and use an incredible amount of oil. But we do it, I would argue, uh, you might know the numbers better than I do, but I suspect America uses oil more efficiently than almost every other country on Earth. We also dig it out of, or uh, drill it out of the ground, frack it out of the ground a lot cleaner than they do anywhere else. I'm willing to bet that comparing Venezuela's oil industry and its environmental record to America, we're going to come out, you know, shining like a star and that that's superior to getting our own oil out of our own ground. Yeah, it, it, and you're absolutely right. But there are two countries in the world who produce oil and gas responsibly, really, and it's America and Canada. You could probably throw the Scandinavians in that as well. But the rest of the world that produces oil, um, Venezuela, the, the Saudis, Russia, um, they have absolutely no regard for environmental standards, for human rights standards, right, for fair wages. Um, so, yeah, it is mind-boggling to see that the administration desperate to get more oil in the world market to lower prices, but refusing to turn inward, right? We would love to produce more oil and gas in America, but as you said in the intro, how many times is he going to penalize us with the Department of Interior, with the EPA? Just two weeks ago, they announced the smallest oil and gas offshore leases in in decades, and they were proud of it, right? They put out that press release 
with glee. This is the fewest amount of acres we have ever made available for oil and gas leasing. Well, why would you be proud of that? If, if there's oil and gas to be found, and quite frankly, what annoys me about that is if you go off the Gulf of Mexico, not too far, you're in international waters. And who's going to set up shop? China will set up shop. Other countries, they'll get drilled for oil in the Gulf, and they'll produce it, and they'll bring it to market, and they'll keep the revenue, and America will buy it from them. So I mean, for years, I've been coming on your program talking about energy, and, and for three years now of the Biden administration, I just I, I, I want to know when it starts to make sense. I, I, can't, I can't understand how much crazier this administration is going to get when it comes to energy policy. I'm talking to Daniel Turner from Power of the Future. You know, Daniel, one of the things I, I rarely hear the mainstream legacy media talk about, but it's this, and I'll bet you know the numbers better than I do. So I go to you know Joe Biden and I say, I'd like to lease some land because I think there's oil under it. And I only think it. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, and so they charge me hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to to g- grab that lease. And they say, here's the deal, Lars. You can go out and spend five or ten million dollars a hole to drig a hole, dig, you know, d- drill for oil. And if you find any after you put all that money in, you know, at five or ten million a hole, I might have to drill four or five holes. Uh, so I'm twenty five to fifty million into it already. But if I find some of that oil. Uh, is it still 15% of everything I find belongs to Uncle Sam or the money goes to Uncle Sam? So they get to be the winner if I win and, and they don't have to take any of the costs if I lose. So it's a total win for the American taxpayer, for the U.S. Treasury at a time when the U.S. government is spending money the, as it is. You'd think this is something people would say, well, that's important. Plus, once I've drilled all those holes, uh, holes and I've paid all those people, all the people who earn paychecks from me billing, drilling $50 million worth of holes, they all pay taxes to the government. If I, if I actually have some returns, I have to pay taxes. My company does on that. And if I get the oil out and caused it to be transported to refineries where it's refined, all of that work pays taxes. I mean, there's a tremendous benefit to the U.S. government treasury and to the United States people, Right. Absolutely. And contrast that to the green agenda, where uh, if you want to build wind or solar facilities, the government will finance it through the Inflation Reduction Act, right, which is the largest giveaway to the green industry in history. Um, they will subsidize you to buy wind or solar. They'll, they'll give you a tax break if you buy an EV. So contrasting the two, the, the, the two industries, one is totally dependent on government, where government is going out of pocket to try to get this industry to, uh, afloat. And the other one, as you said, government has basically no risk and they reap all of the reward. And the royalties have more than have almost doubled on the Biden administration, the royalties that they are taking from the oil and gas industry. And, and so, yeah, you, when you compare the two, one is beneficial to the economy and one costs the taxpayers uh, um, and, and the Treasury tremendous amount of money for absolutely no success, uh, you know, and, and just as proof of this, your audience is, is, is sophisticated enough to remember years ago, we're almost talking 20 years now that the Obama administration talked about all these green jobs and all the green benefits. None of that materialized. Not since nope. 2008 has any of that materialized. And here we are still singing the same song sheet that with green jobs any day, it's going to be a lucrative. It's going to be good for the economy. It's all a bunch of lies. Yeah, it's, it's Keynesian economics where you say if we just prime this solar pump enough, eventually the industry will make financial sense. And they put decades and hundreds of billions of dollars into it, 
and it still hasn't primed at a pump enough to make it make sense. That's Daniel Turner from Power of the Future. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed, and of course, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As many of you might suspect, or if you've listened long enough, you will know that I'm quite skeptical of the trans phenomena that's going on in America right now. But if people want to imagine that there's something that they were not when they were born, that is, you were born a girl, but now you're imagining yourself a boy or vice versa, fine, whatever floats your boat. Don't ask the American taxpayer to pay for it. And secondly... Don't tell our U.S. military that I'm very proud of and very supportive of that the military has to change to make accommodations to make room for people who imagine themselves to be trans. And yet that seems to be exactly what we're being asked to do. And on that, uh, Terry Schilling joins me, president of the American Principles Project. Terry, none of this stuff makes sense right now. When people say, I'm not really a boy, even though I was born one, I'm now a girl, but I'd like to serve in the military, and I'd like you to make a bunch of changes in the military so the military can accommodate me. How did we get to the tail wagging the dog? <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, Lars. Listen, this uh, this all started in academia. Uh, it started uh, on the outside, and what happened was we forced everyone to go to college and get certified other words, indoctrinated into radical ideologies. And those people that have all the college degrees have all had to go through these gender studies classes, and now they're in the military. Listen, this is a big deal for the military to be going along with the trans nonsense because it's the best example of mission creep. The, the, the military's mission is to destroy America's enemies and to protect us from from the bad guys bingo this is this whole trans stuff is has nothing to do with it it's about it's about yourself it's about it, this trans industry is driven by narcissism trying to force everyone to go along with your own beliefs and fantasies no one else gets that why should the transgender movement get those types of privileges what's the specific example from the merchant marine academy what's going on there so congressman jim banks he chairs the and founded the anti-woke caucus in the House of Representatives, and he uncovered that the merchant marines have been providing exemptions for uh, transgenderism in the military. So they will actually help uh, merchant marines who are in the academy transition. Uh, they'll pay for their surgeries. They'll pay for their hormone treatments. Uh, it, it's, it's the full-on woke agenda uh, within our own military. It's, it's totally bonkers. So, in other words, the military's mission has now gone from protecting America 
uh, blowing things up and shooting people to protect this country when necessary. And we've now become a giant social experiment where anybody who wants to transition just has to sign up, promise to do this duty for America for a period of time. And we pay for their surgery and their recovery. And, and we make accommodations for all of the things necessary for them to recover from elective surgeries. Exactly. Well, the only thing that the military won't cover is a detransition because those people need surgeries too. Once you know, once you realize that you've gone through all these irreversible surgeries, there are surgeries that you have to get if you want to go back to your original, uh, uh, you know, appearance as much uh, as totally- you can. Even yeah, though there's, even though you really, I mean, there's one poor young lady that I see interviewed regularly. One of these days we'll get her to be, come on the show, but she talks about how she was given a double mastectomy as a teenage girl, and now she deeply regrets it. She suffers from the pain of it. She wishes that she had her breasts back. And she wishes that she could be back the way she was before a bunch of adults agreed to participate in essentially mutilation of a young lady, which I feel sorry for. But I don't you know, I don't know how you fix that. And even the fix is is not likely to set her back to the way she was. No, that's exactly right. She'll she'll never be able to nurse her babies. She probably probably won't even be able to have babies. Uh, because these these procedures sterilize people, these hormones sterilize these children. They're robbing us, they're robbing the next generation of Americans of being able to create the next generation. It's the ultimate robbery, it's the ultimate crime. You're destroying innocence, you're, you're destroying the next generation. That's what this is about. Well, and Terry, the thing I've never been able to, you know, because usually there's some stop point. Our society is full of deadlines and stop points. They say when you're under 18, you're a child. When you're over 18, you're an adult. When you're an adult, you have a whole new set of responsibilities. If you're charged with a crime, it's a whole different thing at 20 than it is at 14. Uh, and we and we recognize that because of maturity. But what I've never been able to understand, Terry, when I was a kid and I said, well, I'd like to buy a car. When I was 16, I saved up some money. And my dad said, well, yeah, but you can't sign the contract to buy the car. I said, why not? He said, because because the, in every state that I know of, all 50 or 58, if you're an Obama fan, um, they, they, they don't let eight, 17-year-olds sign contracts that are legally binding. How in the world have we, have we allowed children to convince adult doctors and adult medical institutions into making permanent changes in them in any kind of informed cons, uh, consent kind of situation? Well, it's very easy to understand, Lars, when you do the math and you do the research into the transgender industry. It's a $2 billion industry just for the surgeries alone. That doesn't include the pharmaceuticals, <laughs> the, a lot of the, the cosmetic operations. It doesn't include any of that. So what happens is they take their profits from the billion-dollar industry and then they reinvest it into public relations campaigns. They reinvest it into campaigns and elections to get their people elected. They re- reinvest it into lobbying, right? It's just like every other industry uh, that's, that's ever existed, except this is going after your kids. This is like the tobacco industry targeting children, right? It, except it's so much worse because at least tobacco doesn't sterilize you and prevent you from being able to have your own family someday. No, and you could probably smoke cigarettes as a teenager. I, I think I smoked one or two uh, when I was a kid just because I wanted to see what, what it was all about. And then I decided it wasn't for me. Cigars maybe on occasion, but cigarettes, no. But you could smoke cigars for a couple of years as a kid, and it's not going to dramatically change your life. 
go in and become chemically castrated as a boy and then have your body parts cut off, they're not going to be able to put that back. It's going to leave a mark. No, but, but Lars, there's something about this movement that tells me and tells us that that's part of the plan. Right. The, the, the left, as many people know, is full of population control advocates. Right. They think that the world is overpopulated, that we need to force sterilization in third world countries. This is part of it. Right. They want to lower the population. In the United States. They think it's causing the climate to change. Um, and this is an easy way to do it is to pretend like you're helping people uh, cure their mental problems and their self-hatred and loathing uh, while sterilizing them. Right. This is this is eugenics. Part two. I was going to say, I was just going to say, Terry, this is Margaret Sanger's dream come true without all the racial stereotypes or racial overtones because it'll apply to all of us and not just people of color because Sanger wanted to wipe out people of color, wanted to wipe out disabled people, wanted to wipe out uh, people who've suffered from mental disabilities. And she never quite achieved her dream, although Planned Parenthood is a terrible legacy to be, leave behind. But now she gets to do it. And just remember the German guy that she or the Austrian guy that she actually inspired in the 40s. That's Terry Schilling, the president of the American Principles Project. Terry, thanks so much for your insights. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. I want to talk taxes and a few other things with Grover Norquist, who's president of Americans for Tax Reform. But before we get to that, Grover, if I can exercise the moderator's prerogative and ask you about something we just got word about that's happening on Capitol Hill. Um, and that is Rashida Tlaib, who, as far as I'm concerned, is an execrable member of Congress and deserves to be censured, especially. Well, she I think she deserves to be to, censured for just about everything she's done in office in her entire time on Capitol Hill. But just recently, her comments after the terrorist attack in Israel in support of the Hamas terrorists and effectively against our ally Israel Lawmaker, House lawmakers today torpedoed a resolution to censure her with the aid of 23 Republicans. How many gutless weasels do we have in the GOP right now? Well, there are 23 that weren't willing to throw a punch at somebody who would certainly have thrown a punch at them. Uh, I don't know how often they do censures, whether that's usual. I know they're going after a couple of Republicans. Uh, so I don't know whether this is don't do tit for tat, uh, but I, I think the message is pretty clear. And I think the American people get that she was completely out of line, but she is the face of the modern Democratic Party. So I expect every Democrat to vote in support of her. Um, I can understand the Republicans saying, yeah, th- 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 there's some effort to go after the lady from Georgia. 
Um, for, but I don't know what it is she's supposed to have done. So I don't know. I'm not big on tit for tat, but it, it doesn't keep me up at night that people are highlighting and reminding people what uh, the Democrat congresswoman said. Well, see, I don't want tit for tat either. But when somebody really gets completely out of line, effectively suggests that, you know, that one of our best allies should have been attacked, that people should have been slaughtered, that babies should have been beheaded, that women should have been raped and dead bodies paraded in the streets. And you speak out in favor of that. I think that goes beyond the pale. And by the way, while you were mentioning that, since you asked, there were only nine censure motions from 1980 to 2019. And then from 2020 to present, there have been about 35 of them. So it's not uncommon these days for censure. But the idea that a Republican could vote and say, "Nah, you know what? Well, we, we don't want to criticize Rashida for stepping out of line. But let's get to uh, spending, because I'm hoping and I want your read on Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker, are we going to be able to get spending under control with this vow by Mike Johnson? Uh, if you want, if you want more money spent, Mr. President, you're going to have to find places to cut. The Republicans have, in the past, been able, with one House, to wrestle down spending, uh, and that's what the Speaker is looking to do uh, in order to fund the resources that are going to Israel for Iron Dome, about fourteen billion dollars. Uh, the Republicans said, here's what we'll do. We will we'll spend the $14 billion, but we will reduce the money that was going to go to hire more IRS agents to annoy people by $14 billion. Uh, and there is every reason in the world to take 14 or 25 or $45 billion away from the IRS, given their behavior. So I think this is a very good start. The IRS should be the piggy bank. You want to spend something on money on money on something that wasn't planned, take it out of the IRS. Well, and isn't that wasn't that the idea of the old pay for requirement uh, for legislation, which I don't know, does it even exist anymore or do they just carry it on the books to look good, but they don't actually abide by pay for where if you want to spend some money, you got to find something else to cut to spend the money somewhere else instead. Do they do that anymore? Well, uh, well, the Democrats are willing to do it, but they have a slightly different definition than what you or I or your listeners or taxpayers would have had. Their idea of pay for is if you want to spend an extra $200 billion, you have to go steal it. Um, you have to raise taxes $200 billion. And our idea of pay for is if you want to spend $14 billion new over here, you need to reduce spending by 14 billion somewhere else. So be careful when you listen to a Democrat say, well, this ought to be paid for. He or she means higher taxes, whereas the Republicans are saying we need to reduce spending by the same amount. Those are two completely different projects. And too often people use the word pay for in both cases. So it can confuse the American people, which is oddly enough what they're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. they're And they're very good at it. I mean, for instance, Grover, I swear you're the one who told me about this, that there were parts of pay-fors that were paid for by taxes that theoretically would come in from various parts of Obamacare that never actually made their way into law, but they were sort of on the drawing board. And so they, they said, well, we can take the money from that new fee that's coming off this part of Obamacare, even though it doesn't exist. I mean, they use phantom pay-fors too, don't they? They do. And that's why if you have one house, we have the House of Representatives, Republicans. You can draw a line in the sand. 
you do have to battle through the misinformation that ABC, CBS, and NBC will say pay for when they mean tax increases and you mean uh, spending restraint. It's the same problem that Ross Perot uh, addressed. He said, the Republicans and Democrats, they all agree uh, we ought to reduce the deficit. No, they didn't agree at all, Mr. Perot. The Republicans wanted to spend less and the Democrats wanted to tax more. That's not agreement. <laughs> That's an argument. Uh, and we need to make it very clear that our goal is to spend less not to raise taxes to spend more. By the way, is there any sign that most of the major media is going to call Joe Biden on his regular and routine mentions that he has reduced either the deficit or the debt or both of them, depending on because half the time he doesn't seem to know what he's saying. He doesn't know that debt is the amount we've borrowed and deficit is the amount we're short given, you know, if if I make $5,000 a month and I spend $6,000 a month, I have a $1,000 deficit. I mean, it's the kind of concept that the average middle school kid could understand. And yet Joe Biden walks out and says, why, I've reduced the deficit. And he used these phantoms that of saying, well, I've reduced the deficit because spending that was already planned to end anyway from the pandemic ended. And he claims credit for it as though I cut that. He, he, he says he's the guy who made it happen. One of the things that was interesting when Trump left office and uh, Biden came in, a whole bunch of people who used to work as fact checkers got out, uh, lost their jobs uh, or had to go do something else. Because whenever the Democrats slash the media disagreed with a Republican or with Trump, um, they would call it fact checking. But they didn't disagree with Biden on anything so he didn't get fact-checked even when he lied or misspoke because he was doing so with good intentions. Wonderful. Good intentions does it all. The, the uh, only other thing I'd, I'd be concerned about, Grover, is that I think you and I both yeah. agree that the entire $80 billion to, to you know, bloat up the IRS and, as you said, irritate Americans or you know, run little businesses into the ground by, by beleaguering them with inquiries from the IRS – that should be killed on its own. And I guess I, for the life of me, don't understand why the Republicans, even though they've only got that majority in the House, don't say, look, we're killing the whole deal and we're going to find $14 billion for Iron Dome somewhere else in the budget. It all goes. Instead of using the, uh, you know, the current status, you know, the situation with Iron Dome in Israel as an excuse to say, well, that justifies cutting $14 billion out of the $80 billion they want to bloat up the IRS with. How about just... The, the IRS should not be bloated up, period. We're voting it down. Uh, well, they did vote to take it all out uh, in the debt ceiling bill. Then when they had to negotiate because you had to get the deal with the Senate and the president, they didn't get as much. They got a quarter of what they asked for. But they did ask for all of it. And they have a, it, it, John uh, Koskinen, who was the IRS chief under Obama, he said at the time the Democrats passed it that the $80 billion IRS super sizing was too much. He said you can't do that efficiently. Um, so even the head Democrat who used to run the IRS said this number's crazy. Unbelievable. That's Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
The 40th President of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you blame the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to get to your calls. We'll get to those calls in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to our friend Miles Yu, who is not just a great friend of the program. He's senior fellow and director of the China Center at the Hudson Institute about what's going on. Joe Biden's secretary of state, the uh, estimable Anthony Blinken uh, and national security advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, who has a history that you just wouldn't believe. But they're set to meet with China's top diplomat this week. So is that going to actually get anything done that will actually change things for Americans? Uh, Miles, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Should we expect much out of these meetings, or is this just uh, just for show? It's yes and no. I mean, dealing with the Chinese uh, uh, can be very tricky. So on one hand, uh, uh, this uh, foreign minister uh, and the foreign policy czar who is a Politburo member of the CCP, uh, comes to Washington, D.C. to basically make a transactional logistic arrangement for the upcoming uh, Xi Jinping's visit to San Francisco to meet with uh, President Biden, who is going to host this uh, Asia-Pacific Economic uh, uh, Cooperation Conference. So basically, it's transactional. On the other hand, every time you deal with the Chinese Communist Party official on transactional business type, Aside, they always come here uh, with some bigger and more ambitious objectives. They're going to come here to seek uh, America to change the complete overall perspective on China. They want us to basically to shut up. They want us to uh, to basically to uh, to meet their demands. So there there could be both. So we don't know. They they look at this opportunity like this as basically an opportunity to, to reach the strategic goal, not just for transactional purpose. Okay, but but when usually when any people anywhere on the planet, Miles, get together and one side wants something, usually the other side wants something in return. I take it the Chinese don't approach things that way. It's this is what you're going to give us and we're not giving you anything. Or will they come bearing any kind of gifts? Yeah, as long as this exchange is in kind, that's fine, right? It's giving and take. It's basically what diplomacy is, is, is mostly about. Yep. On the other hand, the Chinese don't want to, 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 to trade exchange in kind. They want us to give up our principles, our major policy initiatives, our strategic overlook, uh, in exchange for our, uh, for, for basically granting us the opportunity to cooperate with them on specific issues, be it the climate, the fentanyl, regional security, Taiwan. So in order to get to China to cooperate, to play ball, we would have given up a lot of uh, major issues, uh, the fundamental values of America. This is the lesson of the 1970s. Richard Nixon went to China to seek uh, specific cooperation from China, mostly to help us get out of the Vietnam War. Uh, in the process, China raised the stake much, much higher. In, in the end, we're sucked into, into the Chinese trap. So we give up on uh, our strategic outlook. We give up Taiwan. Uh, we give up um, on... Uh, on many issues that touched upon political and ideological differences. We don't talk about that. Human rights, intellectual property rights, many, many other things have been off the table for almost half a century, half a century until Donald Trump came around and we changed the policy. And I'm glad the Biden team more or less accepted what we have changed. Now, see, that's the part where I just don't understand it. 
We're the big dog on the planet. China would like to become the biggest, most powerful country on the planet economically, diplomatically, militarily. Seems very clear that's where they want to go. Shouldn't we be saying, no, you want something from us, you're going to need to give us something. And you mentioned one of them, the fentanyl issue, where, as I understand it from the DEA, most of the fentanyl that's now killing over 100, well, no, I'm sorry, I almost overstated. Opioids are killing over 100,000 Americans every year. About seventy or 80,000 of that number is uh, is from fentanyl. But almost all of that fentanyl is coming from China. Wouldn't that be a great ask for, for Biden to say, you want something from us, shut down the outflow of fentanyl from your country that is poisoning our people. And yet I get the impression Joe Biden isn't inclined to ask anything from people, from entities like China. Well, first of all, China's fentanyl uh, role is based to facilitate the drug cartels in Mexico. They give them component materials, technology, yeah. even some financing. So, so it's indirect. But again, you're absolutely right. So this has become a major national security issue. That's why Blinken, everybody went to China to talk about this. China refused to play ball because China wants something more, something bigger. Um, and we actually uh, have one very important uh, uh, principle we have forgot. That is, we have to keep in mind, as much as China um, is, uh, 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 as much as the United States needs China to engage us on dealing with issues like fentanyl, like climate change, China needs the United States. United States, much, much more than the United States needs China. That's a very important point we have to keep in mind because the Chinese economy is so much intrinsically related to international global market where we can play a very important role. China, uh, sometimes we tend to panic when China say uh, it's playing hard to get. And so Biden team sometimes uh, get in the habit of begging them to, to play ball. Uh, I would always keep in mind that China needs us more. And look, Xi Jinping has tried for several months that they don't want to engage with the United States. And look at what happened to China's economy. And foreign investment is down almost by 90%, right? Export to the United States has dropped dramatically. And consumer confidence in China also dropped uh, uh, greatly. So without the United States facilitating China into the global market, Chinese economy is going to be big trouble. So the nation is in uh, in a downward spiral. This is one reason why China right now has to, to the, you know, let its hair down and send its diplomats, send Xi Jinping here to the United States to basically to engage with the United States. So it's like a like a cry baby. You you let him cry and and they laugh for a while. And then, remember, to deal with China, the most important thing obviously is to to ask China to cooperate in a nice way. On the other hand. To ignore China would have a much bigger psychological impact on Chinese leadership. They'll always come to come up because the stake is much higher to them than to us. And always keep in mind, China needs the United States, needs the free market of the world much better, much more than we need them. I'm talking to Miles Yu. He's at the Hudson Institute as the senior fellow and director of the China Center. But what, what if anything, would you expect Blinken and Jake Sullivan to, to set up for that meeting between uh, Biden and Xi? Uh, in any way that they're going to ask for is, are we going to commu- hear any of that communicated so the American public knows what they're asking for and what we're offering to give them? Okay, so uh, since last year, in November uh, of 2022, uh, the Biden team has keeps uh, has been uh, sending Chinese the red line of the United States. And number one, we absolutely oppose China to provide any material uh, uh, assistance 
and lethal weapons to Russia for the war in Ukraine. Right. Number two, another bottom line, the red line is no military action against Taiwan. And uh, Biden said, if you do, and then we are going to uh, respond with American military uh, involvement. That has been consistent, uh, not just Biden, consistent from every president since Jimmy Carter. So uh, that's the bottom line. So I think right now China is continuing to, to, to ratchet up the tension uh, in South China, say, particularly the Philippines. And so and we are going to basically, uh, I, I hope that the, the Jake Sullivan and the President Biden will, and Blinken will tell the Chinese, listen, the Philippines is a different country. Philippines has a mutual defense alliance with the United States. Any military encounter with the Philippines, the Philippines is under attack. We, United States, is under duty application, application to defend, to come to the defend of the, uh, defense of the Philippines through means of arms. So that message, I think, in the Biden, I expect Biden to send to, to the Chinese. I mean, well, you can I see, certainly almost hope. on weekly. I just, Miles, I just can't help but think if, if it were Donald Trump sitting there as president, he'd say, look, you folks are weak. You need us more than we need you. And you're going to, and we're going to deal from a position of strength. And we're not going to give up that position. Miles, thank you very much. That's Miles Yu from the Hudson Institute. You're listening to the best of the law. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's Thursday night, and what better night for a conspiracy and a night to talk to John Solomon, who is a political commentator, also a conservative expert and founder of JustTheNews.com. John, welcome back. Yeah, good to be with you. Is there any easy way to understand how the FBI could have 40 separate sources providing damning information about the Biden crime family, as Just the News has reported, and then the FBI simply turning a blind eye to it? Well, it's uh, it's almost mind numbing to think. But just a short while ago, the former intelligence chief of the FBI came on my television show, Kevin Brock, uh, uh, well-decorated career FBI man saying, there's really no explanation other than the government and the Justice Department, the FBI have decided, even if there's evidence, they just simply won't investigate the Bidens. There's no other alternative explanation. He's looked at all the evidence. So you have the FD 1023, right? Yep. That's the firm form that told us there was a bribery scheme in Ukraine. We now have the IRS agents, FBI whistleblowers telling us they were trying to deep six it this morning. I obtained the testimony of former U.S. Attorney Brady. He was the guy up in Pittsburgh who did the initial evaluation of the Ukraine-Biden evidence. And he says, I corroborated enough information to warrant a full investigation, and I sent it to Delaware and the FBI, and they treated it like it was the plague. They would not touch it. He talked about the FBI not wanting to cooperate on any single item that he had found credible evidence of criminal wrongdoing. Uh, he said it was a most difficult relationship, and he had never seen the FBI act this way in any other criminal investigation that he had done in his long and distinguished career as a lawyer and as a prosecutor. That is a U.S. attorney, a member of the Justice Department, saying, uh, "Hey, fellas, there is some form of a uh, there is some form of a cover up going on here right now." And I think that's 
stunning. And then you hear Kevin Brock, a member of the FBI, saying, I looked at all this evidence. There's no plausible ex- explanation except that uh, there, there was a decision made that no matter what the Bidens did, we're not going to investigate them. Okay, so, so John, with Congress, uh, Charles Grassley has this information. And yes. you would think if you go to their chain of command, you know, and you say, okay, who had the information? Who did you bring right. it to? Who failed to act and refused to act? And what did you do then? In any organization, military, civilian, in the government, outside the government, when somebody refuses to act on a serious, consequential matter like this, you yep. uh, at some point you say, I'm going to jump the chain of command. I'm going to go to the ult, you know, uh, up a few levels and go to one of the bosses and say, hey, I've got all this stuff. We should act on it. So-and-so is refusing to act on it. I don't understand why. Either tell me why they're not acting on it or let's act on it, and it gets straightened out. But... Every level of the FBI seemed to refuse to do this, both when Joe Biden was, you know, I think it was at the tail end of his vice presidency, then in the period of time between his vice presidency and when he became president, there were opportunities where they were more than 90 days away from an election. They could have said, hey, this thing's been sitting there. Let's act on it now. And yet it didn't get acted on. But nobody got called on it either. Yeah, no, there were, the silence was complicity in this um, dynamic. And it went on. Now we know that the first informant reports were coming in in 17 about the Ukraine bribery scheme. Yep. And it came again in 2020. Donald Trump's Justice Department, Joe Biden's Justice Department, perhaps Barack Obama's Justice Department, because there's indications some of this came in in 15 and 16. They all had the same answer. We're not going to look at Joe Biden. Why? We don't know yet. That is a fundamental question for the Judiciary Committee and for the impeachment inquiry to determine. But it is no longer in doubt that there was a um, uh, just say no, uh, basically to steal Nancy Reagan's old line. There was just a just say no policy up and down. Now, there are agents on the front lines that tried to fight this. There's a great story where uh, Tim Tebow, an agent that you know Republicans have a beef with, but he tried to after the Delaware FBI was turned down for investigating an illegal campaign contribution to Joe Biden, he said, let me take a crack at it. He went to a different prosecutor, pitched the same case, different prosecutor, did not in Delaware, went to Washington. And he, with the blessing of FBI headquarters, he said, this is something we have to look at. We have to, let me get your take on it. Like, oh, we're not touching that. Sorry, we're not going there. Uh, the, the, it's just remarkable up well, and down of the system, how much a willful blind eye was turned to serious questions about the Biden. Maybe they weren't all criminal, but they were serious questions, and we never got an investigation to determine the merits. I'm talking to John Solomon, the founder of JustTheNews.com, but here's the other piece of this. I understand when people are reluctant to go after politically powerful individuals, right, or even financially powerful individuals while they right. are. But in between the time when Joe Biden stopped oh, yeah. being vice president before he announced he was going to run for the presidency, you'd think they'd have said, well, we weren't going after him as vice president uh, because no. that brings up all kinds of problems. But now that he's out, we're going after him now. Any indication yeah. as to why? I mean, usually you'd have to either be a mob boss with enforcer soldiers that are going to put a bullet in the head of anybody who goes after the big guy. Uh, or yeah. maybe you've got pictures of somebody with farm animals, but something is there. That, and yet none of that seems to fit because there's fear, multiple levels. Go ahead. I, I fear from my reporting and what Kevin Brock said tonight. You know, he's a guy that knows the FBI better that. Somewhere along the way, uh, there was a decision made that in the in the intelligence slash law enforcement 
echelon, the upper echelon, the elite echelon, that they preferred Joe Biden over Donald Trump. And just think about this. Donald Trump was the most powerful man in the world. There was no problem investigating him for four years. But the same dynamic when Joe Biden is emerging, as they play it entirely different. I think the experts are beginning to think that there was a collective belief in the leadership of the FBI and the Justice Department that uh, they were going to put their thumb on the scale of an election for the first time because they just didn't want Donald Trump to be president. That's what the career FBI officials who studied this information alongside of me are becoming to come to the conclusion. That would be one of the greatest corrupting moments in American law enforcement history if that turns out to be what really happened here. Well, because that that is the FBI or people within the FBI deciding we know better than the American public. We fear the public will choose this man. We are going to subvert that election and that we're going to take the place of the, the American public in making that decision, which they had no business doing. That's right. That's it. That you couldn't say it any better than that. That is what the question is before us now. Is there enough evidence to make that conclusion yet? No. Is there a growing body of evidence pointing in that direction? Yes, that's what the weaponization committee in the House is trying to get to. But real career FBI people who bleed FBI blue, who actually believe in the agency and, and dismiss a lot of the criticism of it, they're beginning to say, John, listen, I know the place. I've read these documents you're turning up. There's no other explanation other than they made a decision to put their thumb on the election scale one time. And and we're paying for it still today. And I think that's also true of those 51 intelligence analysts. There was no one with those credentials who could credibly say the laptop was disinformation, and yet they all got together and did it. That's the intelligence community. You think if the FBI and DOJ did it, uh, we have a real reckoning moment in American you know, history. You know what I think of, John? I think of the deep state. I mean, people yeah. laughed when Donald Trump talked about the deep state. This is true because it required cooperation and collusion among a great many people to make the entire organization ignore that. That's John Solomon from Just the News, and you've got the Lars Larson Show. Back in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.